So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you will go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We began 1 Timothy last week with a fun evening on which Pastor Mike gave us an introduction to the book and passed it on to me as Paul did to Timothy, passed on the Ephesian church to him. Tonight we're going to talk about the grounded pillar that pillars This is quite obvious, but all good pillars must be grounded. Okay, it's just 101 here. Pillars must be grounded if they're going to do their job. So tonight we'll be looking at what Paul has to say to Timothy as he is bringing him up as a pillar of the church. Uh, He's going to talk about Timothy. It's good to be grounded. Okay, and a good pillar that's grounded is grounded in godliness. That's where we're grounded. Godly Christians are down to earth Christians. And they are able to uh, be grounded, be with people, be relatable, understand that they're humans, they're flesh, they're blood. And so we're going to look at that. Last week, we talked about hewing pillars and that that's what uh, Timothy is doing or having done to him by Paul. And if you weren't here last week, um, I think that it's an important one for... um, Young and less young alike, just understanding that there are two phases of life. We see Timothy in one, Paul in another, and that people age well. They age best when they can enter and transition from phase one to phase two. Amen. Amen. And so if you want more on that, I explained that. And it's uh, sadly, we don't have many examples of phase two people in the world. We have a, a culture full of adult adolescents, and you see this primarily, uh, well, you see it everywhere, but one, uh, especially we're going to see in this next year, even now, is in politics, the way that they fight like children and point fingers at each other, and no one seems to really be a man. Nobody really seems to be able to use their age in a way that uh, leads others. Um, So the two phases of life, one is where you're being built and you're understanding who you are, your worldview. It's like a structure being put together. Then at some point in your life, that structure will crumble, as Paul explained his did. And you're going to be all disappointed that you waste all these years. You went through a very hardship. Maybe it's a death. Maybe it's a separation. Whatever it is, your life is severely altered. You look at the rubble and realize, shoot, I was building with my ego the whole time. And that's when you move to phase two and you realize, I need to be a God-made person And he's able to not only rebuild you with his tools, but now the structure becomes a house for hospitality. The way that humans are meant to be built, not just constantly living in this phase one. I'm an immature adolescent trying to figure out who I am. Because what happens is when we get um, people who are less young and young living in phase one together, we get fights and we get squabbles. And the less young become very insecure because they still haven't moved into the place they should be. And they don't like the younger because they're stronger. They're more energetic. They have better vision. They have better style. Whatever. (laughs) Um, They... (laughs) So, <laughs> timber. Um, in short, a good illustration is King Saul and young David. Two men living in phase one when Saul should have been a phase two pouring into David in phase one. Uh, a better example is Timothy and Paul, who... Paul is pouring in from phase two to phase one. He's pouring into Timothy and building him up to lead the church. 
that's a much better example of how things should go. Ironically, isn't it ironic that Paul is actually named Saul. Paul is his Roman name. He was named after King Saul, and he began his life just like King Saul, persecuting Christians who are the son of David. So, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, followers of the son of David. So, we see Paul goes through a radical transformation. He talks about that transformation, and he's now able to write to a young man, Timothy, uh, establishing pillars in the church, because Paul now said, I'm ready to graduate to phase two of life. And you know what? In this phase... You're okay with death. As we're going to see in the next letter to Timothy, Paul is okay with death. He realizes he's lived fully, and he's just simply trying to pour out into others from that fullness. So um, I think a very important message for both young and less young as we experience life and move in. Um, but now we are tonight in First Timothy chapter 2. So the introduction to the book is done. Paul now gets into talking to Timothy. Real quick, why this letter was written. It was written because Paul, um, when we were in Galatians, I'm sorry, uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and um, Philippians, when we were in those four books, Paul was writing, if you remember, in house arrest in Rome. He was waiting to have his case heard by Caesar. He writes those five letters while he's waiting those two years to hear from Caesar. We don't know what happened between him and Caesar. Did Caesar ever hear Paul's case or did he just say, whatever, this guy, I don't, I don't time for him. We don't know, but Paul was released. He's now out in the wild again, if you will. He's loose and he's haunting his enemy saying, I'm back. And he now goes with Timothy and Titus, two young pillars. He takes them to Crete where they start a church. He realizes that there are going to be some problems and leaders need to be established. So he leaves Titus behind in Crete while Paul and Timothy plan to go up north to Philippi. On the way to Philippi, they have a layover in Ephesus, which is a port city. So they're changing boats in Ephesus. While there, of course, he visits the church. Paul sees in the church. Uh, it's not good. Some of the leaders in the church have started to produce false teachings and they're leading many of the Christians astray. So Paul says, you know what, Timothy, I've got to get to Philippi, but I'm going to leave you here in Ephesus while I go. So Timothy's like sweating it out as a young man being left with this huge task of dealing with older leaders and telling them, you guys need to leave the church or you need to change your teaching. This young guy, visitor, if you will, comes along and Paul just says, see ya. <laughs> you can just see him waving on the ship as Timothy's like, help me. <laughs> so when Paul gets to Philippi, he writes this letter to encourage Timothy. We often think of it as a private letter, and it is to an extent, but it is also written to be read to the church. So he has some things to say to Timothy, but Paul very strategically, when he sends the letter with the messenger, the messenger is going to read it out loud to the gathered church because Paul wanted the church to know that he has Timothy's back. So if you're not going to listen to Timothy, you've got to deal with me later on. So um, it's very encouraging, always encouraging when leadership's being passed on. People need to know that there's support behind it. This is not a takeover. It's not who is this guy. But um, Paul was definitely helpful towards Timothy in this way. So that's our setting. So remember, the context is Timothy is dealing with false teaching in the church. So um, keep that in mind as we come to certain passages. Always read in context. My professor would always tell us, uh, there's a saying in real estate, location, location, location. That's what makes a house and its value. Um, he said the teacher of those scriptures needs to understand context, context, context. And that's how you... So keep that in mind as we look. 
So grounded pillars, good pillars must be grounded in godliness. Let's begin in chapter two. Here we're going to see Paul encouraging Timothy to put out fires. It's going to be a firefighter. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we, the church, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. There is the first time we're going to see that word godly. Fifteen times in scripture is this word godly or godliness used. It's Eusebius in the Greek. Fifteen times it's used. Eight times it's used in First Timothy. So we see a very big theme for Paul. And as we look at what it looks like to be a grounded pillar, um, it's grounded in godliness. And Paul brings it up here for the first time. Now, he says in verse 3, this is good, meaning praying for your kings and leaders. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires that all people will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus. And then Paul goes on to say, I am giving my life to preach that message. Why would Paul need to tell Timothy to have the church pray? That should be obvious. And also, why would he let Timothy know that God wants everybody to be saved? Well, if false teaching's going on, then we have to assume that what Paul's doing is he's telling Timothy, okay, we know that there are a, little, there are a few fires starting up here and there. Here's one, and here's how to put it out. Make sure the church gets refocused back on prayer. And then you'll put that fire out. And apparently some false teachers were saying that not everybody can actually come to salvation the way we have. There's a certain hoop you got to jump through. There's some tricks you got to understand. There's some things you must abstain from or some habits you must pick up. And maybe that was going on. And Paul's reminding Timothy, you guys need to stop conversations in your fellowships and start praying and praying for others so that we stop getting in this whole uh, bubble of what is right and what is wrong. Kind of like picky, like, well, our insight into scripture is more special than yours. So you got to listen to us. Stop doing that. Start looking at the bigger picture and start praying for the salvation of others. Now, also in here, and since um, we're somewhat dealing with this older, younger theme with Paul and Timothy and how Mike launched us and gave it over to me, um, and last week we talked about phase one and tours, um, I might need to drop in every now and then a, a perspective from myself as a millennial towards baby boomers and others. Uh, so occasionally I'm going to just share, not that these are all my views, but I think it's important that if we're going to be a church that hews pillars out of young people, we have to understand the material we're working with. And sometimes we don't understand young people the way they want to be understood because of the generational gap. And sometimes young people don't understand the less young the way we should because of the generational gap. And one thing I can tell you from, uh, from directly speaking to young people. So again, uh, don't lump me 100% with young people, okay? I know I might be young, but don't think I share all of their views. I'm generalizing. But one thing I hear often from young people is they are very, very, very tired of the political pulpit. 
What I mean by the political pulpit is when pastors uh, begin to stray from simply preaching the gospel and giving us the text and start to throw in their fears or their emotions about where America's going and um, a lot of like angst and we got to pray for our country and can you believe what these people did and just they're throwing all these things out here and I, I will tell you by talking and sitting with millennials, they cannot stand that. And many young people leave the church because they see it simply as uh, zealous, right-wing, conservative, middle-class white people who only gripe about where America's going all the time. Now, believe me, I hear you. I understand. But we need to understand and respect borders, too. That sometimes the pulpit is for what Paul said, that all people may come to salvation. Not that we may complain about our kings and those in charge. He said, pray for them. But then make sure that all people are getting the gospel. That's the goal here, Timothy. And make sure the Ephesian elders stay on track with that. So we have people who are very passionate about politics and the way things should look. And I just want to ask, if we were as passionate about souls as we are about America... What would America look like? Just what I hear and see, I often feel like we are putting America first and soul second. That somehow God has made a secret deal with America like he did with Israel, that we're his chosen people and that the gospel and the success of America somehow go hand in hand. And that if only the church would get their act together and if others would start turning back to God, somehow God had some promise to spare America. I know I'm, I'm probably going to get emails and all this, but that's okay. Um, I'm, I'm just simply explaining some generational viewpoints. <laughs> and that, um, that maybe God lets every culture fall, regardless of where they are with him. No culture's ever survived longer than rome and rome fell itself and this is just the fact cultures fall although i do share with you the 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 yearning for seeing people turn to christ and so does paul he wants everyone to be saved but let's not in calvary chapel we hold um there there are two theologies about israel and i'm, I'm going to sound nerdy for a second so just bear with me but you i think you'll see the connection uh, there are two theologies about Israel. Some people believe that the church replaces Israel and God has no more plan for the Jews. And then there's another theology that sees that the church is coming alongside Israel and that God has specific plans for the, both these people groups. And Calvary Chapel holds the latter, that we don't believe the church has replaced Israel, but God is uh, bringing the church in with Israel and he's, he's, he's keeping his promises to Israel. So we don't believe in replacement theology is what some would call that when you replace Israel with the church. We don't believe in replacement theology, but sometimes we talk like we do. Because I hear people talk like America's the new Israel. And I often wonder, well, what happened to the old Israel? Since when was America that privileged people group? Um... So if we want to hew pillars for the future of the church, we need to find ways to be sensitive and smart and wise about how we share our political views. And it may not surprise you that most millennials are liberal and not conservative. And maybe this is part of the reason. 
But we, might, we must find ways to bridge the gaps and to put priorities in the priorities and let the peripheral stay there and lovingly and gently, gently leading them into what you see as a better way. Does that make sense? I hope you guys are on board with me or at least see something and don't think I'm like yelling at us because I'm not at all. I, I spend more time with you than I... That's not true, actually. I spend as much time with you as I do with young millennials. And it's only because I teach a school class, so <laughs> they don't think I'm very cool. <laughs> That's why people become teachers. They just feel younger because they have to hang out with you. That's, you know. <laughs> the political pulpit is no good, but the gospel pulpit is very good. And let's keep the perspective there. In verse 8 now, it gets a little hairy, if that wasn't already. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in, res- in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess there it is again, godliness with good works. So address yourselves with good works and not necessarily apparel. Now, there's so many things to say, and I, I could just stay here all night and just, just, just so many insights and things and abuses of this passage and proper ways it needs to be in place and all these things. But let me say two things right now. The first is that Paul addresses the men and then the women. So this is not a passage to start hammering at women about. And for every verse and thing about women's modesty I hear, I don't hear much about where are the men praying. Because the men are about, about as naked in prayer as some women dress, if you know what I mean. Right? We are not adorning ourselves with much prayer. So I don't know why women get a lot of the bad rap. Um, but we need to realize that there is a call on Paul to both. But also, don't forget that these are, Paul is dealing with false teaching and what he's talking about. So keep that in the back of your mind, that this is not necessarily just a generalized statement of this is what everybody in the world should be doing, but this is what in Ephesus needs to be done about false teaching. Now, another, the second thing I want to say is that notice that he's actually breaking gender stereotypes, The men, he said, should not be angry and lifting up fists and wanting to yell and shout, but they should be praying with hands raised up. Here we have, if you want to go full on culture's stereotypes, we have the macho man becoming a very soft and sensitive man, doing what much of culture thinks women should be doing, praying. And then on the other side, we have women who... Culture values by their beauty and the things that they wear and the way that they look. And Paul's saying, you know what? Don't be stuck in that stereotype. Uh, Being a female is more than how beautiful you look. So why don't you start doing these works and making works for the church about what you look like? So he's actually liberate. He's he's not restricting people's lives. He's actually liberating their lives. Say, you don't have to be stuck in the classic Disney movie stereotypes. You can be free to be more of a human being. So the men who are usually brutes need to pray. The women who are usually buttes, short for beauty, (laughs) need to find their identity in more than beauty. So that's one of the things he's doing. He's trying to put out a fire there and say, uh, you know what? 
you guys need to stop extremizing, if that's a word, but putting each other on extreme ends of the pole and start working together. Galatians, by the way, says that in Christ, there is no longer uh, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female. And his point isn't that your gender doesn't matter, so everyone be whatever you want. We're not going down that road. But his point is that in Christ, there is equality in the genders. And that sometimes... Uh, culture has been very heavy on the masculinity and the fragility of females and the masculinity of men. And we often try to keep it that way. Uh, more men are in charge in things. Uh, but then they have the feminist movement that's trying to rebel against that. And I know I'm going, Paul's not getting into that. He's not an American, not talking about American things. He's simply saying in Christ, we need to find a balance. That both are made in the image of God. Now, it gets even more hairy in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, that obviously has been abused. On the extreme end, shut up, women. The men do everything around here. Sorry if I sound disrespectful, but that's the tone. That's on one extreme end. Then we have another extreme end where the feminist movement and liberation movement um, are saying, well, women should be ruling the world, quite frankly. And the world would be a better place if men would step down. Um, that's another extreme. Paul is not asking for us to be extremists here. I'm going to explain what he's saying, but let's finish verse 13. Here's his reasoning. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So on the surface reading... A surface reading, it sounds like Paul's doing this. Listen up, women, shut up. Listen up and shut up. And bear children, that's your job. That's all you're here for. Now, men, let's rule the world. Now, lots of people love that perspective. And they use scripture to abuse gender roles. Paul is not saying that. That's a surface reading. And unfortunately, we have a lot of bad teaching out there that teaches the Bible on a surface level. A surface level is exactly what it sounds like. What it looks like on the very top surface is exactly what it means without asking any questions about context. That's a surface level. We're asking for a serious level of reading. A serious level takes every word seriously. It takes the context seriously. It takes who's writing to whom seriously. It takes the whole picture and it doesn't leave it out. And it says all of this matters when we interpret what this says. So a surface reading is dangerous here. <laughs> Very dangerous. A serious reading is equally dangerous because some people may not like what it says. But let's look at it seriously, if you will. So Paul wants the women to learn quietly with all submissiveness. The submissiveness is not to men. He doesn't specify that. He's not saying they must submit to all the men. He's saying they must submit to their learning. So whomever is teaching scripture to the women, they are to submit to the teaching, not arguing with the teaching, not saying, well, I'm beyond that. 
It's the teaching that they're there to submit to. So Paul's not giving men permission to dominate. Um, also, let women learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So Paul doesn't want the women in Ephesus to teach. Why is that? Well, on one hand, it could be one of these or all three of these. But first, it could be that the false teachers have deceived women, that they were the ones that were being deceived. And therefore, Paul's saying, look, they need to not talk until they get their act together and understand what's true and what's false. It could be that these men were preying upon the simplicity of females because in this time, females were not educated. That was not the way. Men were educated. Women were not. A few women were. And that's another, we'll get to that in a minute. So they were much easier to dupe because, well, they can't read. So just trust me what it's saying here. Um, that might be one reason he's telling them not to teach because they weren't educated and were therefore deceived. Um, a second reason might be that some of them are pagan converts and they need to listen to the gospel and understand it before they open their mouth because they don't know about it yet. So that would obviously apply to men too. So maybe that one's not as strong, but it does, it would make sense that he's saying, listen, if false teachings rampant, Timothy, then tell all of the young women to not speak until they have learned fully and listened in silence. And when they get it, then they can share. Um, third possibility is that these are educated women who have come into the church and have begun to dominate the church with their teachings. And the reason that would be a problem in Ephesus is, or a possibility in Ephesus is because that was exactly what had happened in the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world, a magnificently huge temple, which was the very center of Ephesus. And one of the main reasons this was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a huge cult and a huge following. And guess who served Artemis? It was a women-only cult. Men were not allowed to serve Artemis. She was, a statue of Artemis is depicted with a multi-breasted goddess. This was a very, very, very female cult. And the women of higher status in Ephesus would become the priestess there. And when the men would come for worship or to pay their respects or all the other things that happened in this temple, the women were the ones who were prophesying and teaching to the men. So in Ephesus, this was a very women-dominated culture, and women were the mouthpiece. And if women, if some of these priestess or other high-ranking women were coming into the church and becoming saved, it was only natural for them culturally to think, well, it's my role to tell the men what to do. And Paul is saying, well, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We have priestess from a pagan temple coming in and thinking we got the gospel already. And now they're trying to tell the men what to do. And Paul's saying, this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. So in, the, in one hand, while we're extremists sometimes and saying um, men have to dominate the world, in Ephesus is actually another story. And the women felt empowered to dominate the world. And Paul is telling Timothy, wait a minute. I don't want the women to dominate here. They need to learn and silence and be submissive. They need to start to see that male and female are one in the gospel thing and come underneath and not dominate the men, but bring a little bit more of balance and equality. 
These are all possibilities. Of course, the positive in all of this is that Paul is actually, and this is underlying, he doesn't say this, but he's actually letting women learn. Sometimes we look and say, only learn, they can't teach. And Paul would actually say, are you kidding me? Women weren't allowed to learn back in the time. They couldn't study the Torah as a Jew. And the other ones weren't educated in the Greek world. They're allowed to learn and study scripture. This is freedom for them. So on one hand, this is very good news. And this is what Paul's uh, asking the Timothy does in the church is say, let them learn, Timothy, because, because, and this is where he goes to Adam and Eve. If you don't let the women learn in silence and make sure they get what's going on before having some sort of authority, they will be deceived like Eve was deceived. Adam was given the commandment apparently and didn't do a good job at educating Eve. She was deceived, but Adam was the transgressor. That's Paul's thinking there. The women need to learn, uh, Timothy, Don't let an Adam and Eve kind of thing happen. Now, the question, I think it's very clear. It makes a lot of sense what he's saying here when you interpret this in its context. That Paul is saying, in the case of Ephesus, don't let women teach. Um, My question is, does that apply to America today? And I'm asking it, I guess, rhetorically. It's not, you know, really like, well... I'm, ask, I'm just asking that out in the air. Is, is, that, is that the same teaching Paul would do if he stepped into this church? Um, what I do find interesting is that if Timothy traveled with Paul for many years like he did and planted churches with Paul and heard Paul teach in many different contexts, my question is why would Timothy need to be told that women shouldn't teach? Timothy should know that already. But here Timothy's being told As if this is new, not just like flippantly, like, oh, remember this, Timothy? No, Paul's going into the Old Testament and backing up what he's saying. Like, this sounds like it's new to Timothy. So that's interesting, isn't it? So in this context, that seems um, like there's a condition for why Paul wants only men to teach. So now here's what we have trouble with. 2,000 years later, in a whole nother continent, speaking a whole nother language. We're now asking, okay, we hear what Paul said in that time. The question is, is his command situational only, or is it universal as well? In other words, does his command, does it apply to more than Ephesus? And that's, that's where you're going to see differences in opinion, right? There are some denominations that are ordaining women to lead churches. And there are some that say women cannot teach at all. If they are ever on the podium, that is a sin. So we've got, you know, extremes. In Calvary Chapel, we typically want men to be the main teachers of a fellowship. And women are allowed to share in certain contexts as long as they aren't the main teacher. Uh, but women are allowed to share Uh, like a women's fellowship or maybe on a random given night, a testimony or something, they do have room. But Calvary Chapel still holds to that men should be ultimately at the top of the chain. And that's where I think most of your evangelical America fits. Um, So that's, that's where we've come from out of that. But I think the balance is important to see in a passage like this. So are we on the same page? The only last part that's tricky is what in the world does Paul mean when he says women will be saved through childbearing? Wow. 
Well, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to skip that. Chapter 3. <laughs> I read a few things, and nobody really seems to have um, a really, like, home run answer. But I went with this because it fits internally within the letter. If you look or jot down 5, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11 through 14... Um, there Paul talks about what to do with young widows, old widows. He was to take into the church or Timothy was taken to the church, but the young ones, he was to say, no, you need to go get married and bear children. And his reasoning for this was that the younger widows will end up going from house to house. That means from house fellowship to house fellowship as the church met and begin to be busy bodies and gossips. So they would go around, and this may have been the way the false teachers got the seeds of their doctrines around. As they preyed upon the young widows, the young widows would then, because they have nothing else to do, I, I, I don't mean that derogatively, but they, in that culture, a young lady needed to be married and have kids. Like That was their place in that culture. So they would just go around and start talking. Do you hear what so-and-so said? And maybe they weren't educated, and that could have been a huge problem. So Paul is saying, look, the ladies in our church, and maybe even the men too, we would all be spared of this false teaching, saved if they would bear children. Then they wouldn't have time to gossip about the false teaching. That may be what he's saying, and it fits with chapter 5. But again, nobody has a home run answer on that. Chapter 3. Oh, we fought the fires. Good job, Timothy. So now we're in chapter 3, and this is where he is asking uh, Timothy to appraise the pillars. The pillars in the church are the leaders of the church. He needs to appraise them to, in other words, assess their quality and value of leadership. Now, chapter 3 has qualifications for leadership. But I need you to notice that Timothy is not walking into a new church and in need of selecting new leaders. That's not what he's doing. He's walking into a well-established church, and he needs to look at the leaders that are in existence already. So that's what I mean by appraising the pillars of Ephesus. Timothy's not coming in and making leaders. He's coming in, and he's evaluating, he's assessing the leaders that are already there. Therefore, Paul gives us a, a fairly uh, general description of what he should be looking for. They're all behaviors. So in chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. This is, this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, if you skip to 3, 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. So we have two groups of leaders. We have overseers and we have deacons. The old King James calls the overseer a bishop. And that really captures the point because there are, um, in some domination, denominations, you have bishops who are people that are basically in charge of a bunch of pastors and fellowships. So they're, they're playing an overseer role. And that's the same idea. So there's some sort of a pastor in an overseeing capacity. Deacons are believed to be servants who are within the body who are giving of their skills and time to help the body out. So we have two different levels here. Paul's helping Timothy to assess what he has in both realms. Now, um, lest we take all night, well, I'm not going to get into this passage. It's, it's very straightforward in what he's looking for in the qualifications. Again, as a lot of behaviors and behavioral patterns. And the only question that maybe we should raise is in verse 2. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That basically sums it up, but then he explains that and everything else. And the husband of one wife. Does that mean he cannot be a polygamist or he could not have experienced a divorce somewhere in his past? So let's say he has a divorce, he's remarried. Is that married to two wives or one? Or is he talking about being married only to one wife at a time? That's um, a good question that, again, nobody really seemed to care to answer. So that's an interesting one. Uh, Obviously, if it related to divorce, you would have a lot of people that probably need to step out of ministry because they've been married once or twice or three times. Uh, Yet we carry on. So apparently we don't think that that's the interpretation. Or we just don't take it seriously. I don't know. I'm honestly telling you I don't know. So don't go crazy. But now in verse 8, oh, verse 7, 3 verse 7. And here you see the idea. Moreover, he, the overseer, must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. So Timothy, make sure you're assessing these guys and that they look good even on the outside. Now, the deacons in verse 8 are explained. Then you get to verse 11, and here's another interesting one. The ESV reads, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Then he goes back to the deacons in verse 12. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and household wealth. The question here in verse 11 is, who is he talking to? You need to know, and if you have a new King James, your translation helps you because it puts the word there in italics. That means it's not in the actual Greek. It's inserted by translators for clarity. So you need to know that the word there is not in the text. It literally just says wives likewise must be dignified. Now, it gets even more confusing because wives is actually an interpreter's guess on the word. The Greek word, gene, is literally woman. That's all it is in Greek. So literally, verse 11 just says, women likewise must be dignified. So now the question is, and you can see what your translator thought, is who are the women he's talking to? Is it the women of the deacons he just talked about? Or are they the women of their own standing who can become deaconesses? Is he talking about the deacon's wife or female deacons? Which is he talking to? And this is interesting because it would then raise the possibility that there were female offices for the church if there are female deacons. So that, of course, has been a verse of much interest in many people when they were talking about gender roles. Um, Yes, somebody just said Phoebe. She's in uh, Romans 16. There's a woman named Phoebe who is believed to carry the letter that Paul wrote of Romans to the Romans, and she's called a deaconess. So it would seem that this verse 11 is possibly talking to a female deacon. But uh, again, you just got to see that there's possibilities and some of these things are not very clear. Okay, I want to move on. We're out of here. Verse 14. I hope to come to see you soon, Timothy, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, and we know Paul likely will, You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So this is why he's writing, Timothy, 
we need to make sure that we behave properly in the way we run the church. And the goal is so that we don't look bad to the outsiders. And this is why uh, it's important for him to appraise the pillars, to evaluate, to assess where they're at. Because the reputation of the church rises and falls on its pillars, right? The reputation of the church rises and falls on its pillars, Much of society loves to point the finger at the fallen pastor or the fallen leader. And we need to therefore make sure that we are assessing, we're appraising, we're evaluating the pillars of the church because, again, and that's why I talked a lot about their behavior, the reputation of the church rises and falls on its pillars. And therefore, we need to make sure we are hewing good pillars out of the young generation. Now we move to chapter 4. And he now turns his attention to the false teachers themselves and then to Timothy. 4 verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, their conscience being seared may either mean it's gotten to the point where they don't know truth from error anymore or, very provocatively, it's seared with the branding iron of Satan himself, meaning they belong to him. Their consciences are seared. Verse 3, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Now, this is Paul's, this is what Paul's saying, okay? We heard what they said. Can't eat certain things, can't get married. Now, Paul's answer is, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Hmm. We have a fellowship full of self-professing creationists. And what I mean by creationists is we believe in a six-day literal creation. Would I be safe to say it's 99% of us? I'll leave room for some who are not there. (laughs) However, this is... Here, I'm going to throw in the millennial viewpoint. (laughs) There are many times when it looks like the less young are being hypocritical about their belief in creation. And here's why. There is an attitude often, at least communicated, whether this is true or not, at least communicated to the younger. There's an attitude communicated that there are some things on this earth that are inherently evil. Inherently meaning in and of themselves, they are just pure, evil-blooded. And therefore, that nobody should have any business being involved with that. Now... A creationist who takes Genesis 1 not, well, yeah, takes Genesis 1 on a surface and serious level would realize that God over and over said he made this, it was good. He made this, it was good. And at the very end said it is all very good. And that God saw his creation as good. If it came from God, it has to be good. Yet then we hear, though, on the other, yeah, yeah, we acknowledge that God made everything, but... There are certain things that you must abstain from. They said one thing, we say another. You've got to be doing, that's not, that's an evil thing. Well, Paul's attitude 
is he's a literal creationist. He's saying, well, if I believe in creation, then I believe that everything came from God and is there for good and neutral on its own. You hear this? And he's saying everything indeed is good if it's created by God. If it is received with thanksgiving and is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Paul is just simply saying, hey, everything originally comes from God is good. What ends up happening and the danger is when people take the good creation of God and abuse it and misuse it with improper uh, ways of using it. That's when things become bad. Not that it's inherently bad, it's used improperly. And so Paul wants to really strike a balance and make sure that uh, Timothy understands the false teachers are not grasping the entirety of Scripture and they're making up evil where there shouldn't possibly be evil. And Paul's saying, Timothy, make sure your people are not tied down to legalism like that. People now, understandably, some of us may have different standards than others because we know our weaknesses and our limits and our strengths. And so we choose to cut this off of our life and we choose to cut that off of our life. And we have those different standards. But here's where it gets really ugly is when this person here who says, I can't handle that, tells this person over here, you cannot do that. It's evil. It's sin. And this person's like, what are you talking about, dude? You can't do that. It's evil. It's sin. And then we split and we don't get along. That is called legalism when we start to push our views on other people. And this is what C.S. Lewis had to say about this. He often has something to say about everything. In talking about the not black and white, right and wrong, but these things that you can, uh, that some people have different opinions on, in talking about that, he says this. One of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up with him. Think if you know people like that in your life. That is not the Christian way. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons. They might give up marriage. They might give up meat. They might give up beer. They might give up the cinema. But the moment he starts saying the things are bad in themselves... Or looking down his nose at other people who do not use them. He has taken the wrong turn. So, like Paul here, Lewis is simply wanting to say, let's take creation seriously and say it's all good, but some people may use it improperly. So we cannot condemn each other if we happen to find creation good. Now, the millennial perspective there is that we have a church that is overbearing on telling them what to do. Um, I think maybe we're finally growing past this, but for a while it was tattoos, you know. You, you may not like them. I get that. I don't have one. But you uh, cannot start telling them that that's inherently evil. Now you're totally talking about a different gospel than we preach. And you're beginning to enforce on them your views. And that's driving people from the church, especially young people. We uh, millennials often are very optimistic about the world. We actually have hope that things can change. Whereas we're being fed a lot of pessimism from the news and everything. Millennials are a very hopeful group. And they are trying hard to make change happen. And they see everything as redeemable. I mean, it's almost to a fault. Everything is redeemable. And so you'll see them going in hard places and, you know, don't let that fire out. Let them go loose. and Let them passionately change the world. <laughs> so Paul uh, encourages Timothy here, 
understand where false teaching is and don't let it keep going. God is in charge of this world and everything that comes from him is good. Now, in verse, I'm, I'm yakking way too much on some of these points. In verse 6, uh, he now turns his attention to Timothy. In light of the false teaching, Timothy, verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And here's the key. Having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Have nothing to do with their teachings. Their irreverent, silly myths. Hmm. I wonder how that verse applies to the teachers I know who make a living, who spend all their time talking about why everybody else's doctrine is wrong. Or make an expert about exposing the falsehood of this and that. And I I understand there's a place to see that. But there are some teachers that make it their constant goal to tell you what's wrong. Timothy, have nothing to do with that. Hmm. Why should I waste my time telling you about why this false teaching is wrong? Let's just teach the gospel. That's his instruction to Timothy. Keep focused, Timothy. Keep running. Because there is never an end of the conversation of what's wrong out there. So just stick with the truth. Just run with it. So rather than wasting your time, train yourself for godliness. For verse 8, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Timothy, godliness is it. You're going to be a, a grounded pillar, grounded in godliness. That's what I want you to be, Timothy. Don't be grounded in this constant bickering with false teachers. They're there. I told you how to put the fires out, how to deal with them. But Timothy, keep your focus, your energy, ground your strength here in godliness. Train yourself not in why they're wrong and what I should not believe. Train yourself in how to be godly. This is grounded Christian living. And we need more grounded pillars that are just simply saying, you know what? I'm going to stop doing all this high academia language and like making Christians ooh and all or how smart I am about what's false and why that's false and why this way is the true way and all that stuff. And Timothy, just be grounded. Like be a real human being with your people. Walk with them in godliness and show them what it looks like. He goes on to say this in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. That's godliness. It is down to earth, feet on the ground, walking with people. It's an example. Godliness. Set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture or to reading, to exhortation, to teaching. Timothy. Grow, Timothy, read, Timothy, study, Timothy, preach, Timothy, but walk with your people. Be an example, feet on the ground. None of this, my mind's in the cloud stuff. Do not neglect, 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy, remember you're called to this. Be encouraged, be strengthened. 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And one of the reasons millennials do not like preaching, I don't know if that's a shocker to you, they want churches with no teaching. 
uh, just where we sit around and eat bread and talk. <laughs> I mean, literally, there's a lot of churches starting up that look like that. No teachers. Let's just hang out. Um, there's a place for that, but the reason millennials can no longer stomach preaching, I believe, is because the preachers do not live, verse 15. We have preachers who are not practicing their craft. We have preachers who are not immersing themselves in the things they believe. And the people who hear them do not sense any progress in their lives. And some of you know what I mean. You've heard a preacher or some teacher, pastor for two years, and you were wondering why you're no longer fed. You, and you begin to realize after a certain point, it's the same exact sermon every week with a different Bible verse. Paul is encouraging Timothy to not be that person, but to keep growing, immersing himself, taking his tasks seriously. Pastoral work is hard work, even though it might be a lot of sitting at a desk with books. It is hard work, and you need to let the people see that you're working at it. Because there are so many pastors, and I fear that this will happen to me one day, so I'm praying it won't. But, you know, 20 years into the job, like, it's all cruise control. And like, oh, yeah, it's Saturday. What are we doing on Sunday? Okay. Oh, I read it over. I got this. I taught it before. And they get up there, and they just throw out all the Christian cliches. There's not a lot of clarity. It's like, oh, never heard that before. Gee. I think millennials are being lost in the church because we have lazy preaching. We have lazy pillars that aren't willing to stimulate, to think through the faith, and to constantly dialogue with our culture. So, Timothy, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. <laughs> There's salvation on the line, Timothy. This false teaching is bad. You take your task seriously, and you will save many. Now, I'm getting worked up tonight. Um, I want to just finish by talking about the grounded pillar. That Remember, a good pillar is grounded in godliness. He tells Timothy, every chapter mentioned godliness. He says very clearly to Timothy, don't even worry about their silly, irreverent teachings, uh, but train yourself in godliness, which, like bodily exercise, takes work. And I like how he compares it to bodily exercise. It's a physical, down-to-earth thing. Timothy, godliness is too. There are some who like an up-in-heaven spirituality. But Paul is calling Timothy to a down-to-earth spirituality. That's godliness to him. Now, the up-in-heaven spirituality is, are people that just... Spirituality is some sort of mystical, like, in here, but I can't really help you out there. Stay away from the war, uh, everything on the earth kind of a thing. Like, that kind of godliness. Like, I'll be godly by completely ripping myself out of the context. And we have a lot of that. We, all those, we also, though, have people who want to be godly by embracing the world, moving in, loving the people, walking with them, and being down to earth with them, walking where they walk, and then showing them an example of what godliness looks like, of what spirituality looks like. The up in heaven spirituality is unrelated, unrelatable to anybody unless they're really deep Christians. But the down-to-earth spirituality is the one that's going to rescue people. It's the one that's going to grab people. And Paul definitely has this in mind. Look, the false teachers were up in heaven spirituality. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. This food will make you somehow dirty. So, in other words, cut yourself off from everything. But the down-to-earth spirituality that Paul's calling Timothy to is, <laughs> God made the hamburger with cheese. Eat it.
Because how many people are we separating ourselves from by thinking that godliness is somehow unrelated to anything physical and tangible? Timothy, you have to exercise it. You have to walk it. You have to touch it. You have to be with them. And then just to reiterate the point, 316, if you'll go back there, 316. Um, Paul said this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. It's a really weird definition here of godliness, but this is what he says. It's, 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 a, it's believed to be some sort of a creed or something the early church might have used as a statement of belief. And it says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And you know what I see when I see that? Yes, there is an up in heaven thing to that. Jesus was taken up in glory. But there's also a down-to-earth godliness here, manifested in the flesh. Man, if God wanted to show himself, wouldn't you think he would just peel the heavens open and in all of his glory blind us and forever make believers? But God came down in flesh and cried and got hungry and got tired and walked with the disciples and dealt with cranky Pharisees and Paul's and, Pe- I'm sorry, and Peter's that don't get it and say stupid things. He walked with all this, the patience, the forbearance, the sweat, the food. This is how God came with us, manifested in the flesh. And then the church's part proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. This is down to earth stuff. And this is godliness. So let us never think that our godliness, that we're being pillars of the church because we're somehow floating over the ground. These are so head in the sky kind of thing. I know your home is there, but honestly, think about this. How do you communicate? How do you show godliness to a godless world if your feet aren't on the ground? If you're not a down-to-earth Christian, and if you don't uh, doubt, if, or if you do doubt, that um, we should, this is how God created us. In the garden, God formed Adam out of the Adama, or in English, God formed Adam out of the ground, or the dust of the earth, it says. For dust you have been made, and to dust you shall return. There's some value to what Ash Wednesday teaches us as they put the ash on your forehead and tell you this is what you are and this is to what you will return. It reminds us that we are earthlings waiting for our true home. But in the meantime, we are earthlings. (laughs) We're to walk down on earth with people. Um, Adam taken out of the ground. Ground is a damah. And Adam, the word is in there, Adama. Adam comes out of the ground. That is where you're from. That's what we are. And we need to reacquaint ourselves with being regular humans who live godly lives. So that's how pillars in this church can be multi-generational, grounded in godliness so that we can do something for the worldling.